It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Today's episode features the founder of You Need a Budget, an educational platform that helps you get your finances in order. One of the simplest ways to save money is to use discount codes, and our favorite way to find them is through our sponsor, Simply Codes. Their browser extension and iOS app shows you verified deals at your favorite online stores. Check it out at simplycodes.com slash wellevator. That's simplycodes.com slash W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. Of the many burning questions I feel like I have to address with you today, Jesse, I think the first question I want to jump into is how do you really feel about Dogecoin? I feel like it's the future. No, I, I'm glad you told me how to pronounce it by saying Seriously? It. So I just, well, at first I'm like, okay, I, I read it. I'm like, oh, doggy coin. Okay, cool. And then someone said Doge and I was like, oh, Doge. I don't know. I read it wrong and it stuck in my head. And then you, every time you read it, you read it wrong the first way. But uh, Dogecoin. So it would make so much sense if it yeah. was Doggy Coin. I've always heard it pronounced as Doge. So I'm having the opposite experience. But it is a dog coin, and so wh- I often wonder, like, why did they add the e on instead of two Gs? If it's meant to be pronounced, I think just so. Why is it pronounced Doge instead of dog or doggy? To your point. I apologize for ruining it for you from this point forward. I think the only way you would actually ruin it is if you bought up all of the available coins. Well, that's not the way that crypto works. So clearly, (laughs) there's no cap on on how many. There's an unlimited supply of them, Jason. So here's our little... Sadly, this episode, we were recorded this months in advance, and who knows what's changed. But as of this week that we're recording in May 2021... I invest or bought Dogecoin. I don't even know if invest is quite the right term for crypto because <laughs> it's not quite like stock. But yeah, I bought some and there's basically an unlimited amount of it that you can buy, which is, makes it fascinating. Yeah. There's an unlimited amount of real currency too if, you, if you've got the right policy in place. So hence the arguments and, and all the thinking, right? I think that brings up a really interesting point in talking about the psychology of money and abundance, right, is the idea of scarcity, I think, drives people to do a lot of really interesting things with their money. Let's just say resources in general, right? But mm-hmm. I'm curious in, in terms of philosophy around money, Jesse, you know, how much does I suppose positive thinking, scarcity, if you had to say, and I'm not even sure if this is the right context for you, but a spiritual philosophy or perspective around money in general, how do you regard it? What's your relationship to money like? If you were to anthropomorphize it and think money's a person, how would you characterize that relationship? Mm-hmm. Oh, man, that one's that is tough. I think you have to back off from it and ask yourself where you're at, you know, what, who are you? And then money is just going to enable you, accentuate you, you know, in that way. I think it's so much. It's so dependent on the person, 
you know, how they view it, how they deploy it, how they use it. That to me, to call it anything else, I'd be stepping in it in some way or another for sure. You know, it's just, if you are you, then money will just help you be more of that. And the key is, sometimes this is the toughest part of money management. You got to figure out what you really, truly value, and then just make sure that your money is lining up and doing what you want it to do. That's when you start to feel like, oh, okay, this is no longer a burden or something I feel shame about. It's just, it's helping me get my values out into the world, you know? So this this idea of crypto, since we led with Doge and Whitney has been texting me every day with her her excitement and how much fun she's having with it. I, on the other hand, am a lot more skeptical, probably because I don't I clearly don't understand that much of it and need to do a lot more research. But it feels like with things like crypto, with things like NFTs, with digital blockchain currencies and digital artwork, I mean, there, there's so much happening so fast that sometimes I feel like really lost and confused. It's almost like, oh, I wonder if this is how my grandparents felt when, you know, the first iPhone came out. I, it's just, I have this weird feeling of like, I don't understand it. It's so crazy. And I feel, I'm starting to feel lost in it. Right. And so I'm curious, have you personally invested any of your liquidity into crypto or NFTs? Have you, have you begun to dive into this whole digital asset class? And if so, how are you feeling? And if you haven't, why not? Oh, that's great. So I have invested a little bit just in uh, straight up Bitcoin, nothing fancy, <laughs> whatever that means. But yeah, I did a little bit, little enough that I'd be comfortable if it just vaporized on me. And that you're talking to a, a guy that's just incredibly risk averse, end of the day. So I could only put in what I could justifiably lose and not feel tremendous pangs of guilt. And that's what I did. I, I think back in March of last of 2020, where I thought, oh, I'll start kind of buying a little bit. And then I stopped. And then I started again. And it, I'm trying to make it just part of my standard plain vanilla, super boring 90-year-old grandma asset allocation strategy. So that's where it sits. And I have to have it. I have to tell myself what the purpose is, is just to, it's a little bit of a hedge. It's like people that buy precious metals as a little bit of a hedge where they buy stocks to a hedge against inflation. There are all kinds of hedges for all sorts of things. And it's just another hedge where I say, oh, if it takes off, I'll be happy. If it doesn't, I'll be fine. And then being really at peace and resisting the urge to embrace the FOMO and bite off more than I can tolerably lose. Yeah. And that's the advice that I've been coming across a lot, which was really helpful for me. And it was interesting because to this point of this FOMO that gets created, I've known about cryptocurrency for, I think, 10 years now. I, I have had multiple boyfriends that were really into it and would talk about it a lot. And I had zero interest. And it's easy to look back and, and say, oh, wow, can I heard about Bitcoin 10 years ago. If I just bought some then, what would life be like now? And then I got, heard a lot about cryptocurrency a few years ago with a different boyfriend. <laughs> and the thing that I noted, though, in this present day in May 2021 is that at those times, I truly wasn't interested. And I think that's important in life in general, that there's a lot of societal pressure to jump into something before you feel ready or interested in doing it. And sometimes that's good to do. We actually had an episode about this in May 2021 about is it really necessary to get uncomfortable? 
and how much do we push through our resistance or when do we listen to our resistance as a cue that we shouldn't be doing something. And so I guess as part of coping with my regret that I have for not investing, I do feel like it's important to recognize I just wasn't interested or ready to buy it. And then listening to Jason, now that I'm on the other side, I will say, I think I bought my first piece of crypto a week ago as of this recording. And my mindset shifted so much in this past week. I became so aware of it because I'm in it now. And I used the risk that I was taking as the push I needed to learn more about it. So I've been reading articles every day. I've been talking to people about it. I've been on Twitter. Twitter's a, a cool source of information on crypto. There's a lot of opinions and to Jason's point, it's incredibly confusing even when you're in it. And to your point, Jesse, it is risky for everybody, even Bitcoin, which is kind of like the big, very well-known cryptocurrency. Yesterday, as of the, this recording on, on May 13th, 2021, Elon Musk put out one tweet about the environmental impacts of cryptocurrency. And it greatly impacted it, just like we'll see things like that happen with the stock sometime, stock market. Just seeing that like one person could change everything, one decision could change everything. And that's why it is so important to decide when you're putting money in, like what are you really comfortable losing? Because none of us truly have any idea. And I'm curious, Jesse, if you have perspective on this versus the stock market, because you know, that feels more safe. It's like a lot of people feel more comfortable investing, buying stocks, IRAs, all of these like very classic traditional forms of investments. But they don't seem that different than cryptocurrency to me in a lot of ways in terms of the risk factor, because you truly never really know what could happen and how much a company's decision could change your finances. Yeah, I think it speaks to the broad principle of or the, to the principle of broad diversification. So if someone is all in on crypto and they say every every dollar they have is just all tied up, I'd, I'd be really nervous. And there were tremendously sad stories of people just mid-level employees at a, a place like WorldCom back in the day that their 401k mechanism was when you get you know, we'll, we'll match your 401k. And if you keep it in WorldCom stock, then it, you get a little bit of a bump and it's favorable for you until WorldCom tanks to zero. And you had people that lost literally their life's savings. And to put it lightly, that was terribly bad luck, but they were not diversified. And so even, even in a company you are in, you know, where you're the, you're an employee, you feel like the only way it can go is up and you just never want to, you know, the the old all your eggs in one basket kind of a thing. I would just not be comfortable doing that in any way. I will say this. I'm 40 now. So when I was 30, I was following the traditional advice of 30%. You know, your age should be the percentage you have in bonds, the rest in equity. That's a very plain vanilla kind of standard way people go about allocating for assets. And I thought, oh, okay, 70% there, 30% in bonds. And I would watch the market way too much and I would fret. And I realized that while I understood that I was young and could take these long-term risks, I personally did not have the risk tolerance that I thought I should have, whatever that means. And I had to essentially almost like 
you know, the joke, like, oh, give me your man card. You, you know, you lost a little, I have to clip a corner of your man card, that kind of a thing. Like, oh, I should be tough enough to handle this volatility in the market. And I'm not, that was the kind of talk going through my head. I just thought, oh, wait, I'm, my risk tolerance is different. And the end, the end of the story. And that was where I, I reallocated a lot and just thought, okay, more of a bonds and kind of treasuries and more of that kind of allocation, acknowledging that my business is obviously my biggest, you know, the biggest risk I carry. So I am allocated much more like my grandma up north, you know, an hour from here is allocated. And I guess she and I share the same risk tolerance end of the day, you know? So you got to, and then write it down. You know, when you invest in Dogecoin or whatever it is, you got to write down why you did it in May of 2021. So when you, three months from now, when, when Elon tweets something else and it drops in half, you go back to that paper and it, does your paper tell you to sell now or are you just wrapped up in this thing? Oh, I love that. I'm actually going to do that because <laughs> I did start, I started a document to track it. <laughs> you know, how much I put in and what days and all of those things just to give me that perspective. And I love that added layer of why. And that brings me to the question going back to Jason and how he's feeling after this week that I've been bombarding him every day with screenshots of like, look what's happening and look what I'm learning. You know, I also know that I don't, know anything. I'm a week into this. You know, I've heard little little bits and pieces over the years, but until I actually had money in the game, I wasn't in the game by any capacity. So who knows what's going to happen? And Jason's pointed out and other many people point out it's a lot like gambling. And it comes back to the times where I've thought about playing slot machines, <laughs> which are my my the only form of gambling in my life thus far that I've, I've found joy in. When I go to a slot machine, I pick a machine that's going to bring me joy. Just like I would pick, like I picked Dogecoin because I'm a Tesla owner. It's just like, I like Elon Musk for the most part. He's not perfect, but I enjoy <laughs> a lot about him. I'm fascinated by him. I'm fascinated by money. You know, like I started thinking about all those factors, just like when I pick a slot machine, I'm very particular, Jason knows this about me, about which machine I play. And I only have two machines that I will play. And luck they're at multiple casinos around the West Coast. And I go there and I sit down and I say, okay, this is the machine. I am, I'm going to have fun. This is the amount of money that I'm going to put in. And I'm going to enjoy the experience no matter how much I leave with. And over the years that I've played slot machines, sometimes I walk away with nothing. And I have to ask myself, was it worth it? Was it worth putting in $20? Did I have fun? And over the years, I've realized most of the time it was fun because I like the machine and all the bells and whistles it has. But I also enjoy that adrenaline rush you get when you see it go up and you you don't know what's going to happen next. And that's been my experience with crypto thus far. So I do think it's worth the money that I've put in. But who knows, when this episode comes out, I could have a completely different perspective. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the future self <laughs> that when this episode is released in uh, later 2020, I might have a completely different perspective, Jesse. <laughs> I think it's good that you're clear on the why. You know, I mean, it sounds like you're equating the two, and I think that's an accurate and use at least useful to equate them. It sounded like it's been an entertaining week for you. 
And that might be the reason you did it. You put some skin in the game and suddenly reading the article has a whole different feel to it. And I mean, I think that's the reason that when you're out playing golf, you think, well, let's play this one for money. Whoa, okay, this is a little different. It's, I think that's useful for you to just recognize, oh, okay, this is why I'm doing it and the end. And then you're clear on it. So there's no shame and no shooting. It's just, it's just you doing what you got some kicks from. And I think that's great. I'm super curious about this idea of risk assessment and the tolerance each one of us have for risk. Because to me, at least I feel like that topic is a very layered, very nuanced one. You know, whereas one could probably look back or I could look back on the imprinting of my family's relationship with money and say how my mom or my family invested, as you brought up your, your grandmother, Jesse, or, you know, some people in my family that, that were, say, more prone to gambling addiction and what their psychology was around it. I had a lot of really interesting messages, mixed messages around money and risk growing up in my family, right? And I'm curious, I suppose, for both of you, you know, is the idea of risk assessment more of an intuition, sort of a gut thing where you're like, this doesn't feel right, I'm not going to do it? Or is it a very systematic thing? I joke with Whitney and all of our close friends know she's this, the queen of spreadsheets. Whitney is an extremely well-researched, extreme, she's probably the most organized human being I know, period. Like, it's incredible how organized she is. So for her, I would see like a spreadsheet of pros and cons, but is it more of an intuitive gut thing of a yes or no, like, like that primal reaction of a yes or no to something, or is it, I'm going to create a spreadsheet, a pro con list before I decide to put all this money into something new? I think it's interesting because a lot of the times when we're analyzing something, analyzing a decision that we are making or have made, we will come up with reasons that support the decision and those reasons will have us then be able to say, look how rational I am. Now, it may be that we sometimes behave rationally. It may very well be, but my bet would almost always be on emotion that is then justified with some rationale. You know, Not ad hoc, but at least on a post-mortem kind of a basis. And it's not to say that that's bad or there's no moral, there's no value judgment there at all. It's just, we are emotional. So my favorite example of this is when people decide whether or not they should pay off their mortgage and they're running numbers and it's it's all numbers and you know if people that are saying if i do this much more per month you can shave off 8 years save 100 grand in interest i mean it's real money and so they have all of these calculations and beautiful spreadsheets spreadsheets that would make whitney blush they're so beautiful right and then at the end of the day it always comes back down to well do you want to or do you not and to tie that even further and to get a little crazy when you decide i'm going to marry somebody I'm in a lifelong relationship with somebody. You can come up with all kinds of reasons why you work together. Why? I mean, we're talking arguably the biggest decision you may make in your life. So you have all of these reasons and all this supporting evidence and all this experience with this person. But at the end of the day, you are making a totally emotional decision. And that's okay. That's the that's the key. That's the end of this is it's okay that your money decisions are emotional because you are straight up 98% emotion, 1% instinct, and 1% maybe that rational person we like to think dominates everything. It's so interesting you say that, Jesse, because really quickly, I remember reading an interview with Conor McGregor, the former MMA champion, who's arguably the most recognized name in MMA, right? I mean, he's been incredibly successful, not only as a persona, but as a fighter. 
and now is a businessman with his liquor and his other investments, et cetera. He's got a lot of money. Okay. He's very influential. Conor McGregor was talking about his negotiation style, you know, and I mean, this is a guy who, you know, was making, you know, 10 million plus and more per fight. And, you know, I don't know if he's exactly the best avatar we want to talk about when it comes to money and entrepreneurship. He's clearly doing well, but he was saying that for him, he has to try and take all of the emotion out of the money conversation. Because he was saying and paraphrasing, you know, he gets defensive, his ego gets into it too much. And so for him, his strategy was, I need to take money and emotions out of the money conversation. I was thinking, how can you do that though? You know, are you a cyborg? Are you a robot? And to your point, I've tried to do that. You know, when Whitney and I say negotiate different contracts for our business, I still find myself getting my emotions wrapped up in it. And I've tried to take it out of it. And it's really hard to do. I don't know. I think we might say we're taking our emotions out. I would want to know. I would want to see the process. How do you do this? Maybe he knows some things that I don't know. I would love to know that I'm being more rational. But right now, I just think I'm being rational and I don't trust that thought. It's fascinating for sure. And I maybe it's fluid. And I wonder if it could be the same for someone else. Like some of us express ourselves or connect deeper to our emotions. Like that's a huge part of it. And for me, I feel pretty mixed, but I haven't, I haven't really calculated the percentages because I think a lot, I'm very passionate about research and that's a huge part of how I make decisions. Actually going back, Jesse, you're, you're talking about the word why I'm a why person. I, that's one of my favorite words. I ask that question of myself and others very often to the point where it drives them crazy. But One thing Jason and I have mentioned a lot on this podcast, and it's always worth reiterating, is the framework of the four tendencies. And that book helped me understand more of of how the word why helps me with decisions. I really struggle to do something if I don't understand why. So sometimes... I, it's an inner why I don't fully have the words to articulate it. Like what you were saying, Jesse, with the crypto side, it's like, I, cl- I do have a why, but I just haven't said it out loud yet or written it down. But there has to be a why because I'm a why person. And when I get stuck and indecisive, it's usually because I don't understand why. And another great example that's timely, at least in May 2021, is I've spent the last few weeks or so really digging into research about vaccines and finally made a decision about it. And I, it took me months longer than a lot of people I knew to make my decision to get the vaccine because I didn't have the why yet. And I noticed through that experience that a lot of people were making the decision to get the vaccine quicker and either they knew their why much faster than me or maybe they're not why people. And, and that's part of the four tendencies. Gretchen Rubin, who created that, talks about these four different types of people. And I'm a questioner. Jason's a rebel. There's a upholder and there's a... Obliger. Obliger. Thank you. I think in terms of the vaccine, there were a lot of obligers and a lot of upholders. And that seemed to be a lot of my friends. But my friends that are rebels either haven't gotten the vaccine yet or are still on the fence about it. And then the questioners needed a lot of research. And I found that similar, the vaccine was a similar mental experience for me because 
there's a lot of people saying like, just do it or don't do it. But most of the information that's helpful for someone like me is in the in-between. So I'm not somebody that'll just do it because that's not enough information. That's not a why. And the don't do it, similarly, like I start to question, well, why shouldn't I do it? And it's been really fascinating just observing, I guess, maybe my friend group or people that I'm exposed to because I'm recognizing that I'm one of the few why people. And that means I have to kind of go outside the norm that I'm perceiving, right? So even percentage-wise, Gretchen Rubin actually lays it out. I don't remember how many are each of the tendencies, but it really depends a lot on who's in your bubble, who's in your world, like who are you seeing if you have blinders on, because there's so much more than meets the eye. And if you your entire worldview and perspective is based on those small amounts of people, you can either go along with things that maybe doesn't make sense for the rest of the world, or you feel a lot of shame, which is another word you brought up, Jesse. Like you could see everybody investing in crypto, but if it doesn't feel right for you, you might have shame. If you open up your vision, you'll see a lot of people don't invest in crypto. It's just like your specific group of friends and family or whoever's around you are. And that I think is incredibly important when it comes to our sense of self and making decisions is really stepping outside of the world that we're in and asking ourselves, is this, is this the reality or is this just what I'm currently seeing? I try and do that with, we try and, I mean, we're essentially trying to teach people how to get their money under control and control is an interesting word because we're basically saying, you know, your money needs to line up and do what you want it to do. At first pass, people say, oh, that sounds pretty good. I want it to pay my rent. I want it to buy food. That's all the easy stuff. It's it's harder when we're really telling people, you know, we have four rules, but we talk about our rules zero is basically get clear on what you want and or you could say on why you want the things you do. And it is so important in that in your circle, whatever your view is of things will really influence, I was going to say taint, but I don't want it to make sound negative. It, it will really influence what you think is reality. And then where you think your money should go is completely wrapped up in the fact that all of the kids in the neighborhood do those swimming lessons. Oh, I guess we do too. I mean, that is like a super shallow example, no pun intended, but it's interesting because I've always been bothered slash intrigued by just thinking to myself, well, what is really from me and what is from my environment, nature, nurture. There's no answer, I don't think. But I have noticed that there's a piece that comes to people as they start to just build their money awareness and start to kind of slowly line it up with their value awareness. And then they can be spending money on things that I think is patently absurd and I totally support them. It's their deal, right? And then they can look at me and say, Jesse, you are crazy. And I say, that's absolutely, yes, I am. I, I want to use my money for this. And they're like, oh, I, I would never. That's okay. We're both very clear on what we want, on our why. And then when the money follows, that's where you feel peace. That's where you feel a little contentment. There's all kinds of other places in the world where we get back to stress and worry. And and that's that's because we're alive. But we don't have to necessarily carry that stress and that kind of incongruous experience we have with what the money does versus what we actually care about. We don't have to carry that around with us. So we try and get people to line those things up a little better. 
It sounds a lot like Whitney, just like having people ask, why, why are you doing that? One other little, little quick thing. Once a year, Julie and I will do what I call the budget burn down. And it's basically where we don't take last year's and just roll it in. It's like, okay, what do we want? Do we want a house? Do we? Okay. Do we want this house? Do we want a different house? Do we want an additional house? (laughs) What do we want? You know, anything's on the table. Do we want health insurance still? Do we want this? Do we want, I mean, things that you don't question and you, you know, shouldn't question, you question. And it's really fun. We went down to one car last year. Basically, my teenager stole our second car. He's essential. I, I let him borrow it and now he just took it over. It's all his. And it's, it looks like his inside and out the whole thing. I'm like, I don't like driving it. I don't want to want it. It's a teenager, teenage boy car. So it's a van and he thinks it's amazing. And I think it's now his. So all that to say, we experimented with this one car thing for a while. And it was a little bit of like, question your assumptions, question what you've always done, question your norms, recognize that, you know, you're living an exception. Maybe, I don't know, just burn it, burn it all down and see what comes out of the ashes. It's a fun, fun exercise. We do it just with money, but obviously you can expand that out to all kinds of things with life. I absolutely love this as a rebel. The idea of burning something down is amazing to me because I've used this terminology and and Whitney knows this. And I feel like I've wanted to change this terminology, Jesse, but I've often talked about like detonating things. Like I need to detonate this part of my life. And then what rises from the fire or what remains, well, that probably wants to be kept in some form. For me, you know, it's interesting because this last year, much like Whitney sends me crypto things and investment things, I will send her my excitement about saving money on different things. Speaking of saving money, this is a great time to remind you to check out the Simply Codes browser extension and app for your iOS devices. It's an easy way to find the best discounts while online shopping. Finding deals helps you determine whether or not now is the right time to make a purchase or if you want to add it to your budget for the future. You can install Simply Codes today to discover how much you can save at simplycodes.com slash wellevator. That's simplycodes.com slash W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. So one of the big things over the last 14 months at the time of this recording is I took a very determined and sobering look at where my money was going. You know, it was like, okay, there's Netflix here and there's Apple music here and there's this subscription here. And there's, there was all of this kind of ancillary things that my money was flowing to that when I really looked at it, I said, okay, can I get a similar experience elsewhere for less or even zero money? So Apple music is as one example of many. He was like, okay, you're paying $9.99 a month. You love music. You listen to music every day. But the reality is you're at home 95% of the time. And when you use YouTube on your laptop or you use the free version of Spotify, there's not that many ads and it's free. Cool. We save 10 bucks a month. Oh, we've got this storage thing here, saving 10 bucks a month there. But then I really went a layer deeper and I looked at my car insurance. I looked at my health insurance. I looked at all these other things, my, my Wi-Fi. And mind-blowingly enough, on my cell phone, my internet service, my car insurance, my health insurance, I sliced each one of those down 40 to 50% less of what I was paying. My, I was shocked for the same coverages. So as I've been doing this, this, this is a question about allocation. And the allocation question is now that I'm 
saving more money because I've tightened up my budget in a way that has not negatively affected my life. I feel more liberated actually as a result of doing these things. The part that I get hung up on is that I'm aggressively paying down my debt. I have the least amount of debt I've had in my adult life. I'm very close. To, it feels great, right? So now that I have this extra money I've freed up in my budget, it's okay, where do I want to put the foot soldiers? I have the debt, paying the debt off. I have saving more of the nest egg to buy a house. The nest egg is growing, which is great. And then I have money that I want to put into investments. Where I get hung up, Jesse, is sometimes I don't know where I want to put that money because the goals of paying off debt, investing more, and saving more of that nest egg to buy a house seems like they're in conflict with one another because I want to do all three simultaneously, right? So it's a bit of a conundrum because now I have this more flow with my cash reserves, but I'm sometimes not sure where to direct that money. That's where I get hung up. That's a tricky one. Sometimes you can bring future Jason to the table and negotiate with him and see what he says. You know, really imagine yourself some meaningful timeline down the road. Imagine yourself five years down the road and you're living in the house and you like the house. Okay. Nailed it on the house. And then you have debt. Okay. So you, cause you, you went for one instead of the other. So you got the debt, but you got the house. You love the house. Imagine future Jason being like, I'm going to, I'm going to sell the house, pay off the debt. That's one, one thing you could do. You could say, I'm going to sell the house and invest in stocks. You could also then be debt-free and still be renting. And there's no harm. In, I, I want to be clear with anyone ever, ever listening to this again. No harm in renting. You're purchasing something valuable and it's worth it. There's all kinds of upside to renting. So it's not like this, oh, you should, you shouldn't. It's just they're owning a home and purchase and renting are completely different purchases. So they just are related because they're both shelter. So anyway, you could think about your future version of you having done the other things, and then that future version needs to switch. So if you have a big pile of stocks that are all appreciated and the market just kept going up because you went all in on investing, would you sell some of those stocks to get rid of the debt? Would you sell some of those stocks or all of them to purchase a home and just see how it makes you feel and write it down and sit on it for a few days? If you feel like you need to do one only, I don't know, maybe you're like me where you just, you like to just kind of be like, I'm doing this, boom, focus, you know, get it all in there. Like then I am that way. And so I could, I can appreciate that I want to do one and then the other and this, this sequential thing you could, you know, you could run a little more simultaneous. It doesn't sound like you want to. So anyway, future you, what would future you do if you were then to have it and then switch to another version? That's a super interesting exercise. I'm going to do it this weekend because I've never had anyone propose this kind of exercise. It's kind of genius and super fascinating, Jesse. It does feel like there is some semblance of a sequence, though, in the sense that I want my credit score to be in an echelon where I know I'll get the best mortgage rates. So aggressively paying down the debt seems to be setting me up for an echelon of credit worthiness that when I go to get the mortgage combined with the nest egg, I'll get whatever the best mortgage rates are. So I'm actually putting more money toward the debt than I am toward the down payment because I want to get myself in that credit tier. So when it comes time to get the mortgage, it'll be you know a knock out of the ballpark. So there is a little bit of order to, there's, there's some method to the madness, a little bit. Yeah. I like that. And it's a bit of a twofer, you know, you're, yeah, you're getting two for one with that because you're achieving one goal. And at the end of the day, you will have needed a smaller down payment or your interest costs will be smaller at the end, you know, getting a cheaper mortgage. So 
yeah, that's that's very well played. When we go back to emotions and we talk about your your budgeting strategies, you know, as me as an example of looking at what I could live without, it seems that maybe sometimes the idea of deprivation can really freak people out when they're budgeting. You know, of but I need that coffee from Starbucks and it's my ritual and I stay grounded and I'm not throwing anybody under the bus for going to Starbucks every day. But I'm curious with your principles and the methods you teach with you need a budget, since we're focusing a lot on emotions and people's emotional life, how do we navigate maybe the, I'll call it an illusion of deprivation. Because we know on some level, we don't need to go to Starbucks every day. We don't need Netflix, right? I mean, the Necessity is an interesting thing and desire is an interesting thing. So I guess I'm curious how and if you help people, Jesse, like navigate this idea of, oh, but if I take it away, I'm going to be deprived. I can't do that, even though they know it'll benefit their, themselves financially in the long run. Yeah, it's the, you know, the current version of themselves is kind of taken over. And I mean, one of the signs of maturity is the ability to defer gratification straight up. I mean, that's just someone that they have a little more experience under their belt and you can compare that to a small child and then hopefully a wise old woman that can defer gratification for apparently forever. You know, it, there is that aspect, but we need to talk to a few things. One, deprivation as it relates to budgeting the way we see it at a company that's called You Need a Budget and we're, you know, we're quite friendly but in your face about it. We really mean you need to make sure your money is buying the things you want. The end. Now, that means a lot of times people will come back to us with phrases like, I feel like I've gotten a raise and they haven't or, you know, but they feel it. And it's because their money has been doing things they actually don't care about. So before we worry about depriving ourselves, let's just worry about just cutting the money that you will not even feel you're missing. And that happens all the time. There's a gimme here that I, I hesitate to say because I never want to give anyone the impression that I think they shouldn't spend money on whatever they want. But restaurants are what people will cut. When I ask them, how did you find all that extra money to get out of debt a lot faster? They'll do the things like you'd mentioned, Jason, the kind of, you know, look at my subscriptions, recurring bills. They'll do that. And then that's kind of a one and done. Every time we interview someone on a big money story where they've paid off tons and tons of debt. It's like, where did the money come from? Every time they say, we realize we were eating out a lot. So there is that. And during 2020, we all got to test what it's like to maybe not eat out as often. And, and I'm all for supporting local businesses and I'm all for that. So you can use that, but not as a justification for throwing money after something that you actually don't care about. So there's that. The other part that you said was need. Need is such a evil word. Because when I tell you, well, my needs versus wants, that's where you see it framed a lot of the time. Well, Jason, I need this. I've just told you right then, uh, not up for debate, Jason, not up for debate. I said it was a need. Needs don't get to be questioned. But if I say I want this, you can be like, well, why do you want that when you know Spotify doesn't even play that many advertisements? Why would you want Apple Music? But if I was, well, I know I need, I need no, you know, I need Apple Music. It's like, oh, okay, we can't talk about it. So everything we buy, everything without exception, is a want. Every single one. And you can chase that and it's always consistent. I want to clothe my children. Now, I don't want to clothe my children in really expensive clothes, but I'm still in want territory. I want shelter. Do I want a thousand square foot house or a 10,000 square foot house? Still want. 
it's all wants. And if we can just get away from need versus want, we don't have to put that artificial line in the sand that now says this stuff is never up for debate. Let's let it all be questioned. Not all the time because our brain would get exhausted. We need to take shortcuts, but regularly, some of the time, there's no such thing as a need. It's all just, it's all just wants. On this topic of restaurants, I think for sure people are eating out at restaurants less in terms of in person, but it seems like a lot of people are ordering in. Businesses like Postmates are thriving as a result, whether you're getting delivery or you're picking up. Those businesses have still been a really big deal. And I notice on social media how many people will openly admit that they have plenty of food at home, but they're ordering out from a restaurant because they're tired, they feel lazy, or they're doing it to cope. And that ties into that retail therapy, which I think is an important thing to touch upon, Jesse. I'm curious how this comes up with your clients. Are people willing to admit when they're buying something truly as a want because it's serving some emotional desire based on their mindset and their lifestyle feeling stressful and they're burnt out and and a lot of these tough emotional things that go on, people will often justify buying things like food more often or spending a lot of money on food because it's an emotional satisfaction. It's I think knowing the why behind that purchase is more important than the amount, quite possibly. The same thing happens. I mean, we all know in the food space and they're budgeting in food or they're, they're close cousins and you can draw analogies all day long. One of the things that in food that we know caloric deficits will lead to weight loss. And that's, I feel like that's indisputable at this point. And then that's about a 60% effect. And then you can start to get to a smaller percentage where you're saying, well, you might care a little bit about the macro profile, but if you just hit calories, you'd be pretty well off. The idea that It's interesting where if you can just get people to focus on why they are eating, it kind of starts to right size or regulate itself if you're dealing with someone that is struggling with that. And it's the same with money. As you try and probe the why, you find more firepower for resisting where your willpower is gone. And at the end of the day, everyone's willpower is gone literally because we expend decision power throughout the day and there's, it accumulates. So We'll have people in our software, they'll write notes to themselves in the memo field and they'll rank why they bought it. You know, they'll they'll say like this may on a happiness scale, sometimes they'll use that, or they'll just say, you know, swamped from work or tired or lost my willpower. But just going back and going through a few transactions and asking that, it's it's strange that it empowers you to acknowledge your weakness. And and I don't mean weakness in this judging kind of way. We all end up Coping, as you said, that word resonates with me. That's what we do. It's a way for us to quickly address something in a way that we see a, a maybe a short-term solution, but it works. We do, to be frank, we do really well with Debtors Anonymous where people can go in and it's really just about building awareness around the activities and the why behind it. And then oh so slowly kind of reprogramming those habits they've created to cope and retail therapy. We say that sometimes in a way that sounds kind of tried or like, like it would belong in a sitcom, but it's legitimately, I mean, you're talking about people that they're introducing major dysfunction into their lives through habitual shopping where packages remain unopened 
and piling up and they can't stop. I mean, it's real, you know, it really is real. So the getting to the why and building an army of awareness around those purchases really can help people start to slowly work through that. And I'm not saying at all that it's easy. It is serious. It's someone, it's an alcoholic becoming sober. This is real, real stuff. But it's about figuring out what, finding some hook where you could say, okay, this is what I'll I'll use. This is what I can land on. And we've found as people become more aware of their why behind their behavior, it it does help move them along. Well, on that note, I'm curious, what are the next steps? Because Jason and I fully agree, awareness is the first step. And a lot of people struggle to make a change even when they're aware. It's similar to smoking cigarettes. I mean, it's common knowledge that smoking cigarettes is not good for your health, but people do it anyways. And of course, there's the addiction. And I think actually... I don't know for sure, but I would imagine that there is some sort of an addiction that people have to making purchases of any type and how that gives them that hit of satisfaction. And people acknowledge this very openly and yet still do it. So I'll see this on TikTok a lot. People saying like, I love ordering packages on Amazon, but as soon as I get the package, the high is gone. And it's like they, they look for the other high. And unfortunately, social media platforms, including TikTok, are encouraging that cycle because they show you all these products and, and then you say, well, I have to have it. I need to have it versus I want to have it, right? I need to have this thing and this is going to make me feel better. And they order it and they look forward to it and it arrives. And then the, the high starts to go down. They get the product. They realize it doesn't make them feel any better. And then they're on the hunt for the next one. And same thing can happen with food where you think, okay, I'm going to chase that high. I'm going to get whatever food. I'm going to go to the restaurant. I'm going to have this experience. I'm going to drink alcohol if I'm drinking. And you know that whole thing happens. And then you get home or you finish eating and the high is gone. And now you're sitting there and the cycle just continues and continues. So Jesse, what happens next when somebody goes, okay, I know I'm doing this. I guess it's, it's, I don't know if I'm articulating this well, but a lot of people seem willing to acknowledge the problem, but not fully be willing to change. And I'm curious what you found, like what makes somebody more willing to change and really work on it until the change happens? Yeah. The marketer in me wants to know exactly what they would experience that would make them think, I need a budget, you know? I mean, we're in the business of almost preventative medicine, really, where we want to get in front of something or someone, but it's hard to sell when there's no pain. And so we really, this sounds malicious a little bit, but we want to be there when someone has that aha kind of moment. A big one in the US when, and this just happened a few months ago, but everyone gets their W-2 and it tells them how much money they've made. And then the next thought they have is, no, I didn't. There's no way I made that much money because I have nothing. So they've spent it all. They think HR made a mistake and we all know HR makes no mistakes. So they have their this data point that's like, you made an adult amount of money. That's what people will say. I realize I, I was making adult money. What was going on? If we could be a little angel on their right shoulder that said, hey, you need a budget right in that moment. Be, be marketing. We could just, oh, we, we would do so well. And so it's these events that take place that trigger people to think, I need a budget. They're going to have a baby, especially the first one. They're going to buy a house. 
their student loans are now come due because it's six months after graduation and reality like a Mack truck has hit them at that point. I wish we could get ahead of that. Ask me in 20 years how we're doing. Divorce is one. It's a sad one, but that'll happen. But also marriage is one that'll get people thinking, oh, we got to we got to figure out the money thing. So getting a raise is a positive one. Losing a job is a negative one. But there are these big events that take place where people just think, I got to get stuff together. I'm not doing this right. And that's where we want to be. Now, to your point about what do they do, they know they need to do better in this situation. But where do they start? We start every person at the same, same exact spot. So Whitney, let's say you are average starter and you have $300 in your checking account. And that's, that is average. And then Jason, let's say for some reason you're, I don't know why you think you need a budget. Everyone does, but let's say you got 30 grand in your checking account. I could coach you both simultaneously on your start. And I would say, okay, Jason and Whitney, different zeros at the end of this number. What does that money need to do before you are paid again? Whitney, your, yours would be faster because you only have the 300, you know? So you're like, well, gas for the car, food, maybe I have a bill due, done, done, done. Jason, he's just like, hmm, oh boy, the possibilities are endless. For some people, that really is the case, but it's the same thing. Well, what do you want it to do? Well, I got to put gas in the car, but he just happens to have $29,700 extra that he can also put to whatever he wants. It's still both of you being proactive and deciding beforehand what the money will do. And then for the person that has the impulse to spend away a stress or a worry. They have now this plan that they have to kind of confront and say, well, is this according to my plan? And when the plan isn't just, hey, there's a little money in your checking account. Could you or could you not buy this? Now your plan is, you know, Whitney's like, well, I said 60 bucks for gas and I'm not kidding about that one. And that bill is $110 and I really need to pay it. And then I have, you know, I have 130 left to do this or that thing with. And gosh, 40 of it was for my nephew's birthday. Do I really want to take from that. It's interesting where we start to have you doing the trade-off of not, do I have money in my bank account, but do I want to take money from my nephew's birthday present? And I say that only because it sounds mean to do it. Not that you, you know, you can do whatever you want, but at least now you have the real trade-off in hand and the person that kind of impulsively shops or spends, or just your average, you know, average person too, that's maybe not dealing with real real issues like that, they're still doing a really healthy trade-off where we're now saying, hey, Jason, do you want to go do sushi or do you want to fund that summer vacation where you road trip out to Utah and see all the sites? No one ever holds those both up and says, hmm, these are equal. What should I do? But that's exactly what we want to have happen. Future Jason, current Jason, both sitting there at the table saying, all right, what are we going to do? And then future Jason's like, well, in three weeks, the car tire blows out. I'll need a tow truck. Throw me a little. And current Jason's like, well, yeah, for sure. I don't want to leave you on the side of the road. So it's that it's those trade-offs. And that's where someone that kind of naturally or impulsively finds it easy to cope a little bit with spending. They're now not just looking at a bank account that has no information except what's inside. They're now looking at their plan that says all this money, you decided you wanted to do this. Are you, do you want to move it around and maybe maybe we can squeeze it in somehow? That's totally okay. But at least they're now, they've got good information and decision quality improves. That And all we do is teach this all day long to people and then we pay the bills with the software. So I want to get a little bit more personal, Jesse, in terms of kind of what I'm facing as I'm really methodically going through the budget, as I had mentioned to you. It seems that most things 
I have been able to either completely eliminate with no sense of deprivation, honestly, or things that I, I either you know dramatically reduce. There's been a lot of elimination, a lot of reduction. But the big thing and the challenge for me here in Los Angeles, where, where Whitney and I live, for me has been the exorbitant cost of living. And specifically, I mean housing. I barely drive anymore. Like I said, save money on car insurance. It seems like every line item, I've been able to just take out the proverbial machete and just hack, 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 hack. But housing is a very unique thing in the sense that you know I'm renting the house that I'm in. It's a precarious moment because you know with everything being what it is, I mean, I could possibly ask for a rent reduction, but with the the relationship I have with my land person, it's likely not going to happen. So one of the reasons that I have been looking to leave Los Angeles and buy a house elsewhere is because I'm really adamant about wanting to reduce my expenses. And by far, the biggest line item on my budget is the rent and the utilities and the cost of being in this house, right? So with a situation... I suppose, like mine, I don't feel sad or bad about leaving LA. I feel kind of excited about it. But it's because by and large, I think about, you know, if I were to move to a different place, I could easily cut my living expenses, my housing expenses rather, by 50%, easily. And I think about that and I go, oh God, that's really, I mean, that's not a small amount of money. When I calculate what I spend on rent and utilities and house insurance, it's by far the biggest expense every single year for me. So that seems to be a thing that's a little trickier, right? Because it it's uplifting. It's, it's looking at a different place to live. And some people might view that as extreme. I kind of don't view it as extreme because, I don't know, I, I guess what I'm asking is some people are like, oh, why would you leave LA? It's so beautiful and it's so gorgeous and, and the lifestyle is great there. I'm like, yeah, but it's so outrageously expensive for me to continue to be here when I know I could allocate that money, again, toward paying down the debt, toward investing. And so I'm kind of at a point where I'm like, I think I'm going to pick up and move. Is that something you flat out recommend to people you work with ever? Like, yeah, you should just move. Like, if you really, really want to save money, like get the hell out of where you're living and, and go somewhere else. Is that a common recommendation? Do you find that extreme? How do you feel about that? Uh, that is not a common recommendation, but only because people haven't maybe voiced everything you just voiced. I mean, you express it in a way that what you're doing is you're saying saving this money and achieving these other goals is starting to feel more important than living where I live. And there it is. So I don't see that as extreme. I think it's extreme to live in the same place and not be more mobile than we are. Somewhere along in the last 150 years, hundred years, we move less. People like we don't chase opportunity the way we used to. And and I'm speaking very broadly here, but people would move for opportunity. And I think it might be that we're all connected a little more. You can kind of experience so many things from afar in a, in a fairly cool way with how everything's digitally shared. But at the end of the day, sometimes there are jobs and opportunities that would require you to move. And our tendency to treat those as legitimate opportunities has kind of, it's just kind of gone away. I'm not sure why, like societally, I'm, I couldn't speak to that intelligently, but it is, it's a thing. So I think we're actually more extreme in how much we stay put these days than I think someone 80 years ago, you know, my granddad had a farm in Idaho 
and then got polio and couldn't work the farm. And so he moved down to Arizona and worked with his brother to start a, you know, a car dealership and you know, back in, I guess the fifties, 1950s. So that was not strange. I mean, a couple states down, you know, not too big of a deal, but we now see that as a little different than we used to. So it's sometimes fun to kind of look back and say, well, maybe we're extreme now, you know, maybe, maybe that's what we're seeing. I don't know. At least it's a useful thought exercise to think how extreme you're being staying is kind of another way to put it. I just like to flip things on their head and then look at them again and see what other thoughts I have basically. But I like your idea because you spoke clearly about valuing these other goals more than the location where you, you live. Could you go back later? Absolutely. You could move back. It's not, you know, it's not a one and done. It's not permanent. It's not a one-way road. They'll accept you. They'll take you in, you know, you'll be fine. So yeah. Give it a shot. Call it an experiment. Just say, I'm going to go for three years just to see what happens. I took my, at the time, six kids and Julie, we moved to Manhattan for, it was end of 2017. I used the reason that the, our book was coming out and I had to go record the audio book in the same studio where Harry Potter was recorded. So I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. My, I got a lot of cool dad points telling my kids that. And so I'm sitting in the studio and was recording that. That took me one, one week to record the book. But then I had just told Julie, I said, Julie, we should just go live there for a little while. Six kids is crazy. We lived in the Upper West Side, which is the more family-oriented side. But I'm coming from Utah, and I think I'm going to find family-oriented in Manhattan. Like, not even close. It was so fun. We look back on those three months. I, one, I tried to live there for a year, and Julie said, no, no, you did a bait and switch. You said three months. We cannot. We're going back. It was. It's, it's exhausting to live with that many kids in that city where you have to work hard for everything but so fun and just an amazing experience for my kids to see diversity, to, to hear languages. That public school system has a hundred, I think 190 languages in the public school system. I mean, it was so rich in experience. And so all these kids that are all, I say all these kids, meaning mine, they're all hopping on the subway. They're learning how to ride around. We're, you know, we're giving them as long a leash as we reasonably can. And we still talk about New York, not three days to go by where we don't talk so fondly about living there for just 90 days. So I say that all to promote the idea of experiments. So then you can move a little, you know, literally move and just test something out. So yeah, find a place where you just say, Hey, I'm not leaving forever. Y'all I, I love you. You love me. I might be back, but I'm just doing a little experiment. Go for it. Yeah. I love it. And as a follow-up question, Jason, I wonder what's stopping you because to Jesse's point, you just outlined it. It seems to make sense. And I know Jesse doesn't know this, but I am very aware that you've been talking about this for a long time and you haven't done it yet. And my curiosity is what is stopping you truly? What are the barriers? If it keeps coming up for you over and over again, it sounds like a very strong why. And it comes back, Jesse, to the question I asked you, which is like, you can know what you want. You can know what you don't want but still make a change. So Jason, for you, what is it that's keeping you if you feel so confident in this why? It's that I am very aware of wanting to leave and why I want to leave. I have those pieces of information. The piece of information I don't yet have is where to. And I've communicated to Whitney that Oh, I, you know, I, I feel pretty cool in Denver. I like Denver. Okay. But the Pacific Northwest, you know, I, I was there about a, a year and a quarter ago before the pandemic. 
and just I kind of have this resonance when I was in Washington and Oregon up in the trees up there in the forest, the clean water and the clean air. And I feel a particular resonance, but I, I'm not sure exactly where, you know, is it Seattle? Is it Portland? Is it maybe I'm I'm done being in a big city because I've been in big cities my whole life. So I think the piece I don't yet have is that feeling of, ooh, that's the place. Like, let's just pick up, pack it up, get a place and go. So the piece of information I'm waiting on is basically I want to take a road trip up there and take like two weeks and explore, like, you know, hit Bellingham, hit Vancouver, hit Portland, hit all the little towns too, and see how it hits my body. You know, it's like, okay, is, does the energy of this place, the people, does it feel like a place I want to be? You know, you talked about the excitement of New York, Jesse, and I think that's, that's so cool. And what a contrast. I mean, going from New York to Manhattan, my God, that's a wonderful contrast. Utah to Manhattan. Utah to Manhattan. Yes. Uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. And for me, I think, you know, contrast is an interesting part of this because for me, having lived in, in huge cities, including New York and growing up in Detroit, living in Chicago, LA for 15 years, it's just been city, 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 city. And I think for me, I'm craving nature and simplicity and land and those kind of things. So to answer your question, Wit, I just don't have that piece of information of like, ooh, this is the place I want to go check out. Once I have more clarity on that, the wheels are in motion. Then how are you going to get the clarity is the question? Because I think what you're bringing up is a common challenge. People have decision fatigue, too many options. And Jesse, I'm curious. I want to hear, Jason, first of all, right now, how are you going to decide? And then Jesse, I'd like to know, is there another way that you would guide him beyond that if that decision you know, like, is there another level to making this decision? Yeah, I think, first of all, spending a few days in each place and really feeling the energy there. Like I said, you know, what's what's Ashland, Oregon like versus Bellingham, Washington versus Seattle versus how do I feel in those places? Do I feel at ease? Do I feel excited? Do I feel creatively engaged? What are the people like that I'm meeting there? So through information harvesting and the experiment of visiting these places, many of which I've never been. I feel like that, Whitney, is going to allow me to say, okay, nope, definitely not Seattle, definitely not this place, and and sort of get the funnel a little more narrow to a, a, maybe a few places that like, okay, that feels good. I really loved my time there. I feel like that's going to give me the clarity to move forward with the decision because I, I haven't been to enough places up in the Pacific Northwest to feel like there's a direct magnetic pull to one specific place. So the next step is making a plan to go do those things. Correct. Correct. The organizer of Whitney comes out. She's like, oh, okay, I like this. This We can do this. The, I, I like Wait, the I idea. Wait, I got to pause for one second to, to that point, Jesse. My sister was giving me such a hard time <laughs> yesterday. She's coming to visit in a few months. And the first time that she's come to visit me, you know, now that things have shifted, hopefully in a better direction with the pandemic and it feels safer for us, we're making this plan. And for her and most people I know, they book the plane ticket. They're good. Not for me. I literally made a spreadsheet of our entire trip. I've marked my calendar. I've been thinking about it every day and analyzing, should we do this or that? I ask her these questions. I present her the options. And yesterday she was like, Whitney, this is like way too much. And I realized that that's just, that brings me 
immense comfort and security and pleasure, that's why I do it, is yes, it is months away. And for most people, they don't need to think about it. But for me, that helps me out so much mentally. And it's okay that people make fun of me for it because it's for me, not for them. And I think, yeah, Jason, he's similar to my sister. Like anytime I've traveled with Jason or done anything really with Jason, Jason's a fly by the seat of his pants person. He'll probably buy a, you know, a ticket or plan a road trip and do it next week. You know, forbid like he actually plan it months in advance like I would. It's it's funny because there's a book to my right that's called Ready, Fire, Aim. And I'm more of the let's like I want to have it done. So I will, I'll make a decision because then it's done and done for me is, is good, you know? So I would, I would stress you out when he, and, but you have to temper, you know, like we all have to kind of temper that where we lean a direction. And, and I've recognized I have to have people around me, especially in business where I say, okay, my tendency is to kind of shoot first and then start to get my sights lined up. And, and so you have people around you that they maybe like to aim and aim and aim. And so I married one of those people, you know, she, she very much wants to make the right decision. And we need to do a lot of analysis where I'm like, if we would just make a decision, we could move along. And she's like, no, no, no. So that that stresses her out. So it's always that, that tension. But what, what you said, Jason, that I really liked was I'm a huge fan of simulations because it's, it's just a way for you to test things out. And so what you're talking about, you know, going up and getting a feel, you're kind of just doing a little bit of a simulation of like, oh, okay, you're doing the best you can. So we know simulations aren't real, but we train pilots on them. They're they're effective. You know, they, they work well. Then on the flip side, this is like Jesse coming out, a ready fire aim approach is you tell your, you know, the owner of the house, you say, Hey, this is my last day. So we've done so you have a plan and Whitney will guide you on how to make that, you know, get that filled out and ready to roll. And then you also have the, you know, the idea of doing these experiments. And then Jesse gets to throw in a very real deadline to make sure we're, you know, we're cruising in the right direction. So I, I love every approach that we've talked about, but I think, I don't know, I, I say go for it. It sounds like you've been thinking about it a ton. It's time to just maybe have someone shove you out of the plane, you know? <laughs> I have to laugh at that analogy because... Having gone skydiving, it was not really even like thinking about it or taking the class or going up in the plane. The moment, this is a really interesting metaphor for life. The moment that I was like terror set in, actual terror, was when they opened the hatch on the side of the plane and all the wind came rushing in. And then the moment hit of like, oh, this is real. You're 12,000 feet in the air. And you're not going to ask them to land this plane. You've come this far. But it wasn't until the moment the hatch opened. And then I saw, you know, clear blue sky and wind rushing in at God knows how many miles per hour. Then it was like, oh, the, oh, now, now a decision must be made, sir. And so I love that you said that, Jesse, because that's a very visceral and real analogy. And Whitney's also been skydiving. So I know she gets that. Have you been skydiving, Jesse? Have you done that before? I have. For me, it was weird. And this is maybe the ready, fire, aim guy that jumped out of the plane. But I was a long time ago. Once you have kids, you're kind of like, eh, not going to do that again. But I think it was I was 18 or 19. I did the whole class. And I did the static line jump where it just unravels for you. You don't have to, you know, I didn't do tandem. And for me, the adrenaline, the fear 
came, I landed, kind of crash landed. It's hard to land those well. For anyone that thinks they're going to just come in gracefully like James Bond, it is so hard to do that. Anyway, so I kind of crash landed, but I was safe. All bones were still intact. All of a sudden, this wave of adrenaline released, and I was just, I mean, I had the shakes, like could barely stand. I was so shaky. It was interesting, but I, I think my brain just kind of pushed that out, pushed out what I was doing, even when he was like, okay, door open. And I had to stand on the wheel of this tiny plane and kind of rotate myself out. And then I was like, I'm standing on a wheel. It's just nothing is good. But you were just kind of like revolt, you know, like devolving to your training and saying, okay, step one, step two, step three. And then my body kind of caught up to me after the fact. I don't know if that's healthy or not. I feel like that might be unhealthy, but it was an interesting experiment, you know, to do that and see my body's response. I mean, full on shakes after I'm on the ground, totally safe. It was bizarre. What about you, Wit? And I was actually there for skydiving and I actually don't, I don't remember when was like the most extreme or terrifying moment for you. I think it was just the moment that I came out of the plane. I don't, I do remember and it, it, for years after I skydove it, the, and I haven't had this experience in a while, but I would think about it and see the footage from the video and remember exactly how it felt coming out of the plane right now. I'm not as connected to it. So that must've been the most intense part, but because I, I actually did it as a video production, Jesse, like it wasn't just like, they filmed it for fun. Like it was a video project I worked on. So I was so compartmentalized and focused on the video that I wasn't as concerned about like the personal experience of, even though I did enjoy it, my brain was mostly thinking like, am I getting the right shots? And like, is everything making sense here? And so in a way that probably helped me cope. (laughs) I do remember it very vividly. Like I remember coming down and seeing Jason and telling him about it and like the whole rush of it. But it was, it's very different for each person, I think. And I think that just indicates how we cope and how our, our brains work differently. And I think that's why it is so important to work with someone like you, Jesse, when it comes to your finances, because each person has very different needs and different structures and works in, in a, unique way that only an experienced guide can support them with. And I'm so grateful for your expertise in this because now we know who to call on when somebody needs a budget. You know, for me, I love budgeting. Money has been like a huge passion and comfort level for me most of my life. The income is where I struggle. I don't struggle with budgeting at all. And it's so it's interesting too. Like like generating income and building confidence around money, like that stuff, I get stuck. But budgeting, I'm like, ooh, this is awesome. I get excited about it. Like I'm very motivated. I know exactly how much money I have almost every single day and like where it's going, like the balance sheets. I have a spreadsheet and I use multiple online tools to track my money coming in and out. And it brings me deep satisfaction. But you know, Most people aren't like that that I've met and they feel very uncomfortable around it. And it's a big, big challenge. And I think that's why we have to remember how relative money is. That's one of my big takeaways. I agree. I think that one of the best things that we as a business have going for us is the strong community that just kind of organically has rallied around it. I think when you have people start to change their behavior and then see positive effects, they can't help but want to share it with others. Sometimes 
you know, they should stop because they've, they just keep telling their friends, you got to try this, you got to try this. But that being said, you can lean a lot on community. So if you're finding in your immediate friend group that they're kind of, you know, making you the odd person out and you feel like a little bit of a pariah, if you're watching your money closely, all of a sudden, the beauty of this connected age, and there's a, you know, there's probably a dark cloud of it as well. But for me, the silver lining on, on being so connected is what you can find people that are totally cheering for you, you know, rooting for you and, and also telling you, oh yeah, I had that experience and it all, yeah, it took me a little while to get through that. No, I had some missteps and I, I stumbled a little bit and I restarted my budget four or five, six times. Oh yeah, that's normal. All of that is so helpful when we're just getting started. So I just want to encourage people if they're thinking, oh, I, I should maybe give my money a look, find a community that will support you, that won't try and drag you down to that status quo. It's not normal to not have money stress. And so as soon as you kind of eliminate it, you'll be the odd person out and you'll want to have a group that you can celebrate with, commiserate with, that can teach you nuts and bolts. And I'm happy to say we have... I mean, our, our Reddit group is phenomenal. We don't run it, you know, Reddit runs itself. And uh, so they do their thing, but it's fun just to see people come on and say, ah, I'm having a hard time. And the, the cheering it's, it's the most upbeat Reddit I've ever actually seen uh, as far as subreddits go. It doesn't have that level of like Reddit level toxicity that you can kind of get in there. So that's been pretty fun on Facebook. I mean, we even have a YNAB for singles Facebook group that's popped up that's popular. People are thinking, well, I'm going to find a partner that thinks about money like this. So I don't go in there. You know, I keep, that's all good. But I'm amazed that if you can get the money thing right, and we haven't even talked about relationships. We've talked about, you know, individuals kind of dealing with their money, but all you got to do is just throw another person in with their money stories, their money habits, their behaviors, their perceptions. And then you try and combine those two people, we can blow up. So it's doing it with another person. It's so key that you figure out that why that you talked about, Whitney. You figure out the why together. It's really, at the end of the day, just if I can hit on this, when you're budgeting with a spouse, partner, significant other, when you've decided you're going to share finances in some way, and th- how that looks is can be so different. But when you're sharing finances, what you're really talking about is three people coming to the budgeting table. You've got, we've, I mean, Jason, you've got you, You've got your girlfriend, if I recall, if I remember right. So you've got, I don't know her name, but she's there. And then you have, so Jason's priorities, her priorities, and then your priorities combined. So it's it's that view of things. Some Like Jason, you might have just have yours, like your little priorities that only you care about, that needs to be respected. Hers also needs to be respected. And then your combined, like we're going to move. Okay, big respect to that one. So just recognize that we're individuals coming together to create this and the individuals still exist and still get, get to have say, right. And it's critical that we recognize three people come to that budget meeting, not to mention the future versions of you that also walk up and say, Hey, you know, throw us a bone. So, so then there's actually six. There is, wow. but I didn't want to go there. Cause it just, you know, and then it's like, well, how big of a table are we talking about? This is, this is a big table. This is a lot of people. So, so I guess I better budget for a bigger table. Then we're going to add bigger kitchen table to the budget. Cause right as we speak, my kitchen table can only seat four comfortably. So we will add, and you know what, maybe it's a good time for me to pick up woodworking so I can build said table. Maybe, maybe that, maybe by moving and getting a proper work shed 
a la before we started, Jesse, you were detailing me the regaling the intricacies in the multi-purpose space you are currently recording in. And I thought in my head, I need that too. I want that too. I want, want, yes. want. No, no. See, that's better. My one exception, my one exception is woodworking. It's always a need. That was the asterisk on that rule. So for me, woodworking is stepping away from computers and digital and everything fast. And it gets to be slow and with your hands and you make mistakes. It's Zen, you know, you just get in there. I love it. So anyway, total side note on that, but creating something out of nothing, even as junky as it is, what, what I create, I still find deep, deep satisfaction in it. So I promote the shed idea for you. Absolutely. Yeah. It's definitely going on, on the list of envisioning. And I just feel Jesse, you've left me with, and hopefully listeners and Whitney, all of us with so many nuggets of gold. And the big one that I'm going to do is really sit down and have that conversation with my future self. Like that, to me, that resonates in such a way that I've never attempted to do something like that. I've got my journal actually right here on the desk in my office. And later on this afternoon after work is done, I want to take some quiet time and just sit. And I'm not really even sure what I'm doing, but I think I'm just going to sit down and have this conversation with future Jason and, and write down and see what comes through. But you mm -hmm. just left us with also a perspective, Jesse, that I love is your energy around all this is so accepting. It's so open. It's very grounded talking about money and budgeting. But I think the thing that that we love is just your energy is very, I'm not even sure how to describe it. You feel like a cool brother to me that's like, yeah, dude, I'm, I'm going to help you get your ish together. It's all good, dude. It's all good. I'm going to help you get it together. So your approach is just awesome, Jesse. And it's always wonderful having a conversation. We hope you've enjoyed today's episodes and learning about our sponsor, Simply Codes. Their tool is one of the easiest ways to save money when you make your next online purchase. All you have to do is visit simplycodes.com slash Wellevator and install the extension on your web browser and or your Apple devices. Next time you visit a store's website, click the Simply Codes logo to see the best deals available, then copy and paste that deal into the discount section at checkout. We'd seriously love to hear what you save on next. So please send us a message to share the best deal you found with Simply Codes. With you and for anyone out there listening who really finds that you maybe need some budgeting support as well, we will link to everything for You Need a Budget, Jesse's website, any of the videos, YouTube channel, podcast, the Reddit, everything that you need to get your money in order and work with Jesse, we'll have all those links at our website, which is wellevator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Go ahead there and click on the podcast section. It will take you to the transcript and the show notes for this episode with all of Jesse's links, all the ways that you can learn more about his strategy, his tips, and how to work with him directly and join the YNAB community. Also, we will have more episodes coming out. Every Monday and Wednesday, we have episodes. Every Friday, we have our guests. So... Click, subscribe, follow Wellevator, because we will be bringing you a lot more life experiments. And with that, Jesse, thank you for sharing these new life experiments with us. And thanks for taking the pressure off, man. I, I honestly feel psychically and emotionally better about these big decisions coming up just by talking to you. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. Those are kind words. I really do. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.